Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Good evening, and welcome to Rev War Revelry. Uh, we hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Um, so we're just going to sit around. This is literally, I guess, the square table because all the, uh, the tiles, but uh, this round table discussion. Um, but questions that came in from the audience have literally put up with us for, what, 34 straight weeks. So uh, thanks for uh, all you uh, listeners and watchers and, and posters and et cetera. But um, without further ado, let's throw the first question out there, and that is the most overrated general officer. Uh, we'll do Colonel and above. So uh, we'll throw it up to the guy sitting at the Boston Massacre site right now, um, Mark <laughs> Malloy. Uh, well, I, yeah, I just mentioned uh, uh, before we hopped on uh, Ethan Allen. Um, and granted, I don't know that much about him, but one of the, the stories that we heard on our ERW trip from last year was uh, when we went up to Fort Ticonderoga. You know, one of his uh, most uh, famous moments was, uh, you know, demanding the surrender from the, uh, the, the British uh, officer there. Uh, which, upon our arrival and discussion of the event, apparently he uh, uh, did much, uh, uh, he kind of puffed that event up more than it actually was. And uh, Billy's probably favorite, Benedict Arnold, actually uh, <laughs> played a bigger role in that than, uh, than Ethan Allen. Um, but yeah, no, I'd say Ethan Allen, though, is, I mean, it's a household name. Uh, he's kind of been wanted as a Revolutionary War hero. But and I said this might come out of ignorance, but I'd say he's overrated. Well, Mark can no longer go to Vermont, so um... <laughs> <laughs> he's starting to ruin all those uh, northern states. And Mark's not going to be allowed in uh, much of the northern states. Uh, there, there are a lot of states that Mark's not allowed to go to anymore. So we'll just <laughs> add that one to the list. That's another. <laughs> that's another reverie there. The states that Mark is not allowed to go to anymore. Um, the one-hour version. So. Uh, well, since he talked about Benedict Arnold, let's pass it to Billy, uh, since you mentioned Benedict Arnold, uh, most overrated officer. Uh, I'm going to say that the most overrated general um, is the Marquis de Lafayette. 
Ooh. Yeah, uh, I think obviously you cannot deny the importance of him obviously coming here and volunteering his services, his relationship with Washington, uh, his courage on a battlefield, obviously, is second to none. Uh, but I think as an actual independent commander leading troops on a field by himself, uh, he stumbled into a lot more, a lot more trouble than uh, many other Continental Army officers did. And I know, Phil, in your upcoming book, you're going to talk about uh, kind of his debacle at Barron Hill, where he almost gets himself bagged and his, and his entire force there. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was contemplating him. I'm actually reading a biography of Lafayette right now. And uh, I mean, Washington tells him, do not take a fixed position. And so uh, so how does, in fact, um, the British don't uh, force you from a position? And what does he do? He goes right out and makes a fixed position. So like literally the exact opposite of what um, Washington told him. Um, one of the guys that uh, popped up uh, in actually our recent uh, Rev War weekend down to the Yorktown campaign, I want to throw out Mad Anthony Wayne as one of the most overrated officers. Um, we have Mad Anthony, I mean, as a name given to him, not because um, of any great prowess, but I mean, what exactly does he do except charge headlong into something? Um, the other person, I didn't know if we were doing militia, but I would do Thomas Sumter as one, but I also like to say that. South Carolina, so I want to uh, head back um, to the Palmetto State. But I mean, Anthony Wayne at Greenspring, um, he just attacks. I mean, that's all he does. He attacks. Um, I mean, he uh, given these assignments. I mean, it's assignment at Paoli or whatever um, is to actually kind of a um, little more what uh, strategic, and he just blows it off and uh, gets past his force butchered there um, as well. So. I mean, Matt Anthony Wayne's a guy that I think should have been put on a smaller leash and giving direct assignments. You need someone to attack heads first in something, give it to him. But putting him and Lafayette together in Virginia, um, you uh, had two guys that uh, were not well suited for independent command. And the one that might have helped them, Von Steuben, is too busy training um, soldiers way out west of Richmond. So I'm going to throw Matt Anthony Wayne as mine. Um, but since now we're in Virginia, we'll go to Mr. Orison. For, uh, <laughs> well, Billy took my Lafayette, so I'm going to stir some controversy with Mr. Malloy for talking specific, just strictly military. George Washington. <laughs> he, I mean, really, I mean, you know, obviously he kept the arm together. So as far as a leader goes, uh, you know, uh, there's no, there's no comparison. But as far as commander in the field, um, and this is really just to get Mark going, to be honest with you, because um, he's going to watch his Bears lose here in a few hours. Um, but really, other than Trenton and Princeton, uh, he doesn't have any military victories in the field to speak of. Um, again, he does keep the army together, and, and part of this is in jest a little bit. But I do think a it's it's hard to rate Washington's uh, command presence in the field because he is so revered, right? Like he he's a myth. He's a He's the you know marble man type figure, and so it's hard to actually take a nice critical look at his abilities in the field. But I think um, when you look at him in the field, you know, I mean, obviously Yorktown's his best accomplishment, and without the French mark, it ain't happening, buddy. Yeah, yeah you're wrong there because he does have some <laughs> very important tactical victories, Trenton and Princeton, and a uh, second Trenton as well. Those three battles were all uh, victories uh, on the on the tactical side. Washington's uh, presence on a battlefield, uh, bearing himself uh, to the, uh, you know, all the way up in front of the troops at Princeton, leading his soldiers. Uh, Is that the proper place for him, though? 
at that moment it was absolutely <laughs> the cause is on the line and if those never happened the revolution would have been destroyed in the first winter so uh i i would say washington is still i would i would actually argue the opposite because i think he's he's routinely uh diminished as he lost more battles than he won he you know i think this has become a common line of uh iconoclasm of trying to you know hey here's the guy in the biggest pedestal let's try and take him down a point and um a guy actually uh robert ryan wrote a question how about the british side as well could you argue that uh washington i mean if Washington's greatest victories are because of the uh, failure of the British um, to put a more experienced officers out in those places. Um, I mean, is it a failure of more of Cornwallis than a victory of Washington? And I mean, so we do uh, British leaders um, that work British leaders. Um, or do we just all pick Henry Clinton and call it a day? So, <laughs> well, back to Trenton and Princeton real quick before Mark jumps in on that. That's his, that's his baby. Um, I think and I think Mark would agree with me on this. I think Princeton's a better battle victory for Washington than Trenton. Um, just because he is facing Cornwallis. He is facing, you know. Well, he was facing Cornwallis at second Trenton. Uh, yeah. Well, I can't wrap in second Trenton and Princeton together, kind of, just because they're so linked. But, yeah. Correct. Uh, and that's, you know, this where I do want to mention, you know, we mentioned the British side. I do think Cornwallis is sometimes overrated. I think he, he is a good general, but like, yeah, second Trenton was a momentous opportunity. And Cornwallis, you know, says, oh, we'll bag the old fox in the morning uh, and fails to guard the road off on the, the right flank or whatever. So Washington's army is able to totally flank his army. Uh, and then from our recent trip just down to Yorktown, uh, you know, for him being such an aggressive commander and all this other kind of stuff, he just seems, I think some people mentioned it on our tours, is he just seems kind of like worn out or tired or whatever, because he doesn't follow up uh, Green Spring, the victory there. Uh, he just kind of goes to Yorktown and is just sort of content sitting there. Uh, it doesn't seem, you know, this, you know, this aggressive commander that you kind of see in the back country of South Carolina, North Carolina chasing the dam you know he seems aggressive and he, he you know he has his definite positive points but i would say you know sometimes he's overrated as being you know the best general on the british side um granted you know how and clinton also have their foibles so <laughs> well so someone mentioned in the chat um tarleton which is a great i think a great uh response um you know he does have his accomplishments but i don't think his accomplishments match the fame you know i think anyone that's interested in the revolution has probably heard of banister tarleton right so i just you know um just looking at what he does in the field obviously you have waxalls um and you know you had the cavalry operations there in, in south carolina right after charleston but other than that um you know we, we saw him down there in Gloucester in his first, his last uh, field command and doesn't do too well there either. And, um, you know, for the amount of fame he gets, I don't think probably he, his, his, uh, you know, accomplishments match the fame. Yeah. But Billy, Billy is our, is our resident Brit. So I'll let Billy take that yeah. one. I, I was going to agree with you there with Bannister Tarleton. Um, uh, I think even like his actions, you know, uh, Tarleton's quarter essentially becomes a rallying cry 
and it really instills more of a feeling of vengeance in the Southern colonists and kind of um, streaking fear into them. Uh, so, yeah, I think his actions have more of a uh, con dire consequences for the British in that regard um, than what actually happens or his battlefield successes or not. So, but I would have to say I was going to go with Cornwallis as well, because uh, I think Clinton is a very, very good battlefield commander. I don't think he is a good strategist in the long run as commanding all of his majesty's of his majesty's forces in North America. I think William Howe uh, out of those three is the best. The only problem is he really doesn't understand what that center of gravity is for the American cause. He thinks capturing these major uh, political and economic centers will bring the colonists to their knees when really uh, his victory was always directly in front of him. And that was crushing Washington's army, which he allowed to escape multiple times. So they definitely all had their flaws and contributed in their own ways to uh, the Britain's overall failure. I'd like to tell us, uh, here now that we uh, have another comment that I'm overrated. We'll just keep picking at Marcus, uh, Late Horse Harry Lee. That's um, picking at me, too, by the way. Oh, He's a Prince William boy where I work. Right? Oh, there he is. So throwing it out there for the Virginians here. So someone said he's one of the most overrated leaders of, uh, of the American Revolution. So uh, Robert Ryan is going, uh, going barbed at Mark and uh, Rob here with Late Horse. No, I, I kind of tend to agree with that a little yeah. bit. Um, you know, Lahorse has got, you know, his legion. He does do some daring things up in, in you know, New Jersey, New York, and obviously in South Carolina with Green. Um, but obviously, you know, in popular memory, Lee, right? Lighthorse Harry is Robert E. Lee's dad. So, I mean, that is, that plays a little bit into it. Um, the best thing about Lighthorse Harry Lee to me, as someone who studies the American Revolution, is the book that he writes about the Southern campaign that so many historians cite in their works, even though he's not at 75% of the things he's writing about, right? Um, but I used to have it somewhere. Oh, here it is. But yes. um, reprint version here. Uh, but, but um, you know, he, I, I think his fame is mostly because of what he says at Washington, you know, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of the countrymen. And, of course, his, his role as a, well, he really wasn't a dad to Robert E. Lee, let's be honest. He, he 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 was a father or what, what, you, to be, what right? you want to see right whatever you want to call it but he's not someone that was there to help raise him but um that's a good point though light horse does get a lot of credit but doesn't really do a whole lot i mean but his time in i mean i think one of the things that he's um not known as well for and is actually one of his big accolades is actually working with the militia on the partisans in south carolina he's one of his one officers that and he worked successfully with Francis Marion and others um, for a few um, small but important victories. And so he's one of those guys that can collaborate. And I mean, you see it so hard between the Continentals and militia about the distrust or the uh, lack of coordination. So, I mean, there it is. But in the large scheme of things, um, there's really not a great cavalry commander in the uh, in the Rebel War on the uh, American side. I mean, think about it. Um, you got a few William Washington or Blasky. I mean, you don't really have a cavalryman to put your the hat on himself. Yeah, I mean, I think this stuff is also really interesting uh, and pretty vicious. Files uh, massacre uh, down in North Carolina was, uh, you know, part of uh, Light Horse Harry's guys. You know, basically a wax haws in reverse, where they just really butcher uh, uh, loyalists, uh, uh, loyalists down North Carolina. 
And then there's also a story of uh, early in the war when he's up in New Jersey, I think, uh, you know, there's um, some of the people, uh, 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 some deserters got caught and uh, he told Washington he wanted to uh, execute them and then chop their heads off and put them on pipes outside the camps as serve as a warning. And Washington quickly wrote and said, don't do that. You're going to just, you know, you're going to give propaganda to the British, uh, which uh, it was already too late because uh, apparently he already did it to one deserter. So they had to quickly take that stuff down. Uh, but it's just an interesting anecdote. Uh, really shows you uh, how, you know, brutal some of the war could be. Um, and uh, Mike Sasser wrote a, a good biography on uh, Light Horse Harry, too, called Wedded to My Sword. Um, but, uh, uh, as Rob was saying though, too, like you can't really divorce these guys from their later public careers. I mean, Washington's tied to being the father of our country. Lafayette is tied to being, you know, America's, uh, uh, uh favorite Frenchman. Um, and, uh, Light Horse Harry yeah, is tied to all of his activities after the war as well. So I think all of this is colored by that, um, whenever we think about what their role in our, uh, memory is as far as. Uh, how effective they were, how good they were. I think we've run full circle. Um, any, also, uh, what, what, what's the opposite of that? Who gets no attention? I mean, I think, I'm always coming across these guys' names. And they have no attention, like General Sterling, uh, like, like all these other kinds of guys who are kind of important, especially like in the early part of the war and, and, you know, they're totally ignored or, you know, nobody knows who these people are whatsoever. Um, and I'll throw that out as one who's, who's totally underrated. I'd say General, uh, uh, you know, Lord Sterling, uh, because I feel like a lot of people don't know who he is. I think he played an important role in the battle of Long Island. He definitely is, plays important roles uh, at Trenton and Princeton, commanding brigade there. Um, you know, even at Long Island, he was captured by the British, uh, uh, refusing to surrender, and then was exchanged later. So, um, I don't know. I just think that's kind of interesting too to think about. You guys have any anybody? If who... we're going to do that, I'll, I'll throw out the uh, the Iron Man, uh, John Stark. Um, so, not the guy from Stark Industries, not Robert Downey Jr., but uh, I mean, Stark is there on the um, he holds the flank at Bunker Hill, I think, uh, down on the um, uh, next to the, the river there, and then he also, I mean, crushes the. Um, um, what the British uh, during the Saratoga campaign um, and um, pushes them back out. Um, and it's what the greatest quote or whatever. Um, someone's hard boys or Molly Stark uh, sleeps a widow tonight. Um, so, I mean, he is the guy that, yeah, is, um, is overshadowed even in that uh, New England army where you always think of um, uh, Seth Warner or um, Ethan Allen or any of these other um, uh, militia type guys uh, in that area. But John Stark is the guy who uh, does great yeoman service both at what Bennington and um and at Bunker Hill. Um, and plays an important role. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's mine. Yeah. Um I'd say there's a couple of foreign officers that usually get overlooked. Um at least outside of the Rev War community. I mean you have like Casimir Pulaski, um even Thaddeus Kazutsko, Louis Duportel. I think it's Dupartel who does the uh, siege works at Yorktown for Washington's army, becomes his engineer. Um, so these, you know, the foreign officers too coming over here, they really do provide the American army with a lot of tools that we were lacking uh, prior to their arrival. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna throw one out there. I'm gonna get beat up again, but that's okay. Um, Mark and I did a um, American Battlefield Trust Zoom 
on Charleston to Camden. And I think they air tomorrow, Mark, or Wednesday. I can't remember. American Baffle Trust. But anyways, uh, catch us there. But uh, I defended uh, Horatio Gates for a little bit, um, which was, which you know, which before I start working on research in Camden, I would never have done. But once you uh, research Camden, there are some things he does that obviously there are no excuses for, like, you know, running to North Carolina faster than anybody else. But, you know, I don't think his battle plan leading up to the Battle of Camden is really, um, you know, it's, it's a lot under, misunderstood. And a lot of those uh, historians down in Camden that have been doing some great research and great work have, you know, been trying to promote that, you know, that research about how, you know, Gates isn't looking to attack Cornwallis. He's looking to set up a defensive position and receive Cornwallis north of Camden, not necessarily attack Cornwallis. Uh, Gates doesn't have any, you know, um, delusions of grandeur because of his militia. Also, Gates is, you know, really criticized for his march to Camden. Um, I do think that part of that plays in with the militia. He was trying to get the North Carolina militia to meet him at his camp, and they refused to move. They basically refused the Continental officer's orders and uh, following that governor of North Carolina. And so Gates, I think it moves south quickly because he's worried about those seven, 800 North Carolinian militia that he's afraid that Cornwallis um, or the British in general, you know, Broaden or whoever may get to before he gets there. So um, I think, you know, we attack Gates a lot. And of course, what Gates does later in the war with the cabal and 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 all the controversy there is not excusable. But I think uh, I tend to defend him a little bit when it comes to Camden. Can't defend him on leaving the field as quickly as he does, but um, I, I defend him on his plan for Camden. And of course, as we all know, the, f the three of us, four of us know, Mark does a great Horatio Gates impersonation, but we'll uh, <laughs> save that for a different day. <laughs> but I also want to say Thomas, I want to say uh, Gage, too. Uh, you know, Phil and I uh, working on Lexington and Concord, um, you become kind of uh, sympathetic to, to him a little bit. Uh, he's you know put here in Boston. Um, all the uh, authorities over in England and London have totally underestimated what's happening in Massachusetts. And, you know, he's given, you know, obviously he has regulars with him, but, you know, there's a, there's a, a letter he sends. If you think 10,000 is enough, send 20,000. If you think 20,000 is enough, send 40,000 and so on and so on. Um, he's trying to let them know that the situation in Massachusetts is getting out of hand and he's put into a no win situation. Um, you know, uh, no matter what he does, something is going to happen to start war. It'd be very hard for him to, at that point, in my opinion, to, you know, put out the fire of revolution. Uh, and of course, you know, Lexington and Concord's laid at his feet. Um, obviously, Bunker slash Breed's Hill is, is laid at his feet as well. Um, but I think he's put in a position that is really a no-win no position for him to be in. So I want to throw him out there. I agree, and I mean, um, as, as a dovetail off that, I mean, what he what he allows the Sons of Liberty and everything, the freedom he gives them to organize. I mean, and, I mean, Warren is still in the town. Dr. Warren still in the town, sending messages out, and I mean, they know about his activities. So I think, I mean, the restraint that Gates shows, we always vilify him, but I mean, he really gives. Um, he might be one of the best um, conduits to the revolution by allowing this moment to happen and not clamping it right down. So um, 
I mean, it's all because of his wife, too, who, um, I mean, pulling the trains, obviously. So Americans love that story that has to be her that uh, is passing on the news and notes and everything. So. Well, according to the History Channel, Sons of Liberty, it was her, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't think we want to go down that road, though, do we? Um, no, we get, we get a lot of good comments over here about overlooked officers uh you know john glover is a good one too mark you know obviously he's he does more than just trenton but you know obviously he plays a significant role there at trenton uh coming from brooklyn over growing across the east river to manhattan army there of course he had you know rode everybody across the delaware river uh yeah, he's definitely, yeah, pro probably more known in Marblehead, Massachusetts than national. Deserves national recognition. All right, I, uh, I kind of have a question I wrote down here. Uh, kind of ties into what we've, we've been talking about and talking about George Washington earlier, too. Uh, who do you think commands the Continental Army if George Washington is either, say, killed or sacked um, by Congress in, in late 76, early 1777, do you think that would be? Like if he was killed at the battle? Well, he, yeah, say he's killed at Princeton or maybe after New York, he's relieved of command or, you know, after the Philadelphia campaign, he's relieved. Like who, who do you think's next in line really to take his, take uh, his position or uh, if not, who was actually in line, who would you choose? Who do you think would actually be able to fill his shoes? I mean, I think I think it would be either Charles Lee or Horatio Gates. Uh, yeah. Charles Lee, of course, is captured in early December 1776. So he was off the table. So if he was killed at Princeton, uh, then I think it probably would go to Gates. Uh, in fact, Gates had left to go to Congress, which was then down in Baltimore. Uh, I believe uh, actually, uh, you know, hoped to get that role. Um, uh, I don't, yeah, whether either of them would be able to, you know, fill the shoes of Washington, I, I don't know. Perhaps militarily, but I don't know about as far as the whole American cause and the mm. idea of surrendering power and deference to civilian authority and all these other kinds of things that made Washington indispensable. Um, obviously, I think, you know, Green emerges later in the war as, you know, Washington's right-hand man, but Green in fall 76 was like persona non grata after uh, allowing Fort uh, Lee to fall to the, um, Fort Washington, Fort Lee to fall to the, the British, um, which he suggested, you know, they try and hold on to those. Um, so I don't know. Uh, that's a really good, interesting question. I think it would depend on the exact time, but I think Lee and Gates are constantly kind of hanging in the wings there, waiting. You know, I think both of them I mean, pressed at some point in the I mean, I agree with uh, Mark. I mean, if he's sacked after New York, I mean, the only logical person there is probably Lee. I mean, uh, Sterling and Sullivan are both captured and, and uh, uh, the battles of New York. Green is not where he, what he is later. I mean, he's still a rising star. And, uh, same as uh, Knox um, as well in the artillery. Um, I mean, the only other one um, is Putnam, but I mean, he goes home uh, as well and he's not uh, the mental pride fortitude in advanced age. So, it I mean, I think if Washington is say, captured or sacked, Lee is not captured at Basking Ridge because he's going to make that march to take over the army. 
Um, the only reason he's uh, dithering is because he doesn't want to join a losing cause and connect his men to that. So, I mean, later on, yeah, I mean, if it's after Valley Forge, it'll be interesting. Um, I mean, if Lee is put in charge, um, say Washington gets sick at Valley Forge in 1778, is it, um, um, is it Lee at that time? He is second in command, but does, he's new to the army. Uh, having recently returned, so would they have put someone else uh, in there as well? Um, that's, I think, the answer. But it all depends on, yeah, the time. But um, thank God, I guess, he didn't get uh, back there to New York. Um, but, I mean, yeah, he, uh, the commenter said he did want Green. So that was after Green had established himself as the quartermaster to, uh, as general later in, in the war, but not, not definitely not on retreat in New Jersey. Uh, Green would not have been. Um, um, a logical or even accepted choice, I think, by the remains of the army. Somebody uh, said um, Benedict Arnold. So, Billy, at that point in time in the war, what's up with Benedict Arnold? Benedict Arnold's up in Canada mm -hmm. uh, during that point into 1776. And then when he comes back down finally to, uh, to Washington's army, then he's sent up to Connecticut um, to help repulse the British raids there. And that's he's wounded there. And then after that, that's when he's actually promoted to, uh, to Major General. But still, even at that point, and if we're going by seniority, uh, even though Arnold had been one of the original generals in the army, there were still, you know, the five others or so that outranked him. So it isn't until later on that his proper rank as a senior general is uh, restored. So yeah, it's a very good possibility. The rank would have played a big role. And I also think it's, Andrew, I'd be interested in there, like who would also accept the position at that point, being that it looked like such a losing cause. Uh, would, even Washington in, you know, 1775, when he accepts command, says, you know, how he thinks, you know, that, you know, he might not be successful in this endeavor anyway. So kind of interesting to see if somebody would, you know, step up to, you know, at that point in the war being it, that it's Nadir basically. Um, yeah. Man, what a big what if that was. You would have um, Washington down, Arnold maybe taking command of the army. Billy would be our modern day version of Mark, talking <laughs> about how great Arnold is. And Mark would be like Billy trying to defend Washington with his short term of service. It'd be a total flip. <laughs> It is, it is also, you know, it's one of those things that I also, I mean, it's amazing the Continental Congress did kind of stick with Washington through all these, you know, troublesome periods. And if you just, and I'll be here, I'll be, what time is it? Uh, 32. Okay, I'll bring in the Civil War. Uh, it's just amazing to look at the Civil War and see Lincoln's kind of constant uh, changing of the guard throughout that war, um, as far as the commander in chief of the um, the Union Army, and to see that there was no attempt to do that during the Revolution uh, in large respect. I think a big part of that, though, is there is no elected commander-in-chief in, in charge of the government, right? There's, that's not how the Continental Congress and government was set up. So makes sure. it look, you, know, you have the Board of War, obviously, but it's, it's more complicated than having one person in charge, right? You know, and removing somebody from command. And also I think too, Mark, you know, it's politics, it's Virginia and Virginia plays a huge role, even though there's not many battles fought here. Um, they're supplying the South, uh, you know, they, they're paying for a lot. So I think having a Virginian as John Adams famously says, you know, it's very important to keep uh, a Virginian in place, but you know, without Trenton and Princeton, who knows how long they stick with him, really? Correct, yeah. I mean. 
I mean, is, his army, his army was gonna on the verge of dissolving anyways because they're right. expired. So if if he made no movement at Trenton and Princeton, the army dissolved. So Washington command of a few hundred guys or whatever. Uh, yeah, correct. They they probably would have to step in at that point because there would be nothing to stop you know, the British from yeah marching straight over the Delaware and you know continuing to take Philadelphia in seventy six or so, early seventy seven. So. Um, one question, one question, Phil, if I can jump in that we got, um, somewhere, um, actually it might've been an email, but since, since we're all public historians, we like to promote sense of place, uh, favorite, our favorite sites to visit American revolutionary sites, early, early American, uh, history. Cause you know, French Indian war ties in war of 1812 as well. So, and Mark, you can't say Trenton. You got to pick something else. You got to pick something that's not Trenton and Princeton. All right. <laughs> but you know, it'd, it'd be cool to hear some of you guys' favorite places to visit and, and why you think it's a, a you know, a, a worthwhile place to visit. And you know, I'm trying to think of a place that maybe people don't know, right? I mean, we just went to Yorktown a few weeks ago. People know Yorktown, but I'm trying to think of places that have been recently that were really fascinating to me that maybe aren't some of the larger sites. What do you think, Phil? You get that, you're, 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 you know, the wheels are turning. It is. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, I've spent some time either writing or working on, I mean, some of the winter encampments, uh, Morristown, Valley Forge, uh, initially they come uh, to mind, especially all the other history of Morristown. Um, and then I started focusing up on, I mean, um, the, the Boston area, not just Lexington and Concord, but like uh, the smaller like sites around town, Dorchester Heights, or going downtown and um, the, uh, the the walk. Uh, the, what always fascinated with Boston is that um, it's a modern city, but it had it hold on to its historical like center. Um, there was randomly an office building that had a plaque on it that this was the home of Robert Treat Payne, one of the uh, uh, delegates, and so forth. And so um, that's what I always find. It's Morristown, New Jersey, Boston um, is off, kind of off the beaten path that you can walk these places and see these plaques on houses that um, commemorate other parts of that history that you built up. Um, I mean, down the street in Morristown, obviously it's very famous now, and I probably took Mark's answer because it's about Hamilton. But I mean, you have, of course, the uh, Schuyler House there. Um, but I mean, you have um, such a, I mean, Morristown is such an interesting uh, a crossroads. And, so, and you go over into Springfield uh, Farms or um, in the Watchung Mountains, which people drive back and forth today and don't even know. Um, that is just a barrier um, and everything. So maybe Morristown is still that, and I know we got a bunch of people on, um, from the Morristown site, um, but it's one of those ones that um, you can kind of get a sense from, uh, you have both Washington headquarters plus Jockey Hollow in different places and you can kind of mix and match officers with uh, the enlisted. Um, and I mean, um, if I can throw one more out, I've always been uh, interested in uh, the, of course, the Fort Necessity um, that uh, the Braddock's Road, uh, something about sitting at Jemineville Glen and reminiscing that here's, I mean, a guy that, I mean, his career could have been done right there. Um, and I mean, uh, assassinating a French um, officer um, and then, I mean, recovering from there. So just the thought of what Washington must have thought of when they um, scalped uh, some of the uh, the French there and thinking what's going through a head of a 19 or 20 year old there compared to, um, what happens later on when the French come marching into uh, New York in 1780? Uh, now they're uh, they partners in fighting this rebellion. So 
Port Necessity, and I'll do um, I'll pick two Boston um, and Morristown because uh, that's my top three. Yeah, I absolutely agree that Jumont Bell, uh, Glen, and Port Necessity are definitely uh, two of my favorite sites in the entire country. Because like, like you said, at Jumonville Glen, there's really no other place like it uh, in the country where you can literally stand there. And the area itself is so remote and unchanged that it literally feels like you step back in time. You know, like Washington says, you know, you can still kind of hear the bullets whistling. And believe me, there's something charming in the sound. But um, after that, I'd have to say Port Ticonderoga is one of the most uh, pristine 18th century sites in the country the museum there is second to none when it comes to 18th century artifacts and just being up there in uh the lake george lake champlain river corridor you know the one of the most important water highway systems in north america since uh since uh you know europeans came here uh and just the history of ticonderoga itself and the carillon battlefield outside of it you still have the original french earthworks that were then um reconstructed by Americans when they returned there during the revolution. Um, but just standing there, that battlefield itself, it was the Battle of Carolina's the bloodiest battle fought prior to the Civil War uh, in the United States and Canada. And it's, it's still overlooked and forgotten to this day. Mark, I'll go last. I'll, let, I'll make it easier for you. It's always hard to go last because everyone's picked everything. Okay. Uh, well, I have to shout out to Trenton and Princeton, even though what you say, just because uh, Trenton is so built up and you don't, a lot of people don't realize uh, the importance of the site. You know, I was just telling somebody about my book the other day about how it tells you where all these, you know, battle sites happen. I mean, where James Monroe got wounded in the Battle of Trenton is today just a piece of asphalt on the roadside. There's no marker, there's no wayside, there's no interpretation of it, but it's just kind of like, that's where it happened. And yeah, it's, it's the total opposite of Jumonville Glen. You don't feel like you're transported back in time whatsoever, but you are standing on that hallowed ground, even though it has been built up. It's still the same ground they were on. And you can still see some of the terrain features of the time. But I digress. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I will say, I mean, I'll, I'll say my favorite historic site in general is uh, Mount Vernon because uh, I think that's the best site uh, to go to uh, in, in numerous respects. First of all, it's, it's a fantastic site. Uh, the amount of original uh, items and the amount of, you know, the original house there to be able to go there where Washington called him, uh, you know, to go to the actual tomb where Washington's buried is, uh, you know, uh, an amazing experience to be, to be there. Uh, they have a you know museum and education center that drives home the important stuff about the Revolutionary War and the French and Indian War and everything else, uh, and Washington's centrality to it, of course. Um, but yeah, no, I just think you know, and basically also because growing up, uh, going there really instilled in me the importance of Washington, but also the importance of historic sites, learning from the site, being at the place where history happened. Uh, you know, I learned more as a kid going to Mount Vernon uh, than I did, you know, in actual school. Uh, so that always resonated with me. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to work in public history and, you know, be able to do this kind of stuff uh, ever since I was a little kid. Shout out to Mount Vernon. So. Yeah, a, a site that no one's been to or ever heard of before, Mark. I mean, it's... <laughs> Hunter, right? Well, I mean, it's, 
it's hard to, I mean, uh, all right, I want to hear from you, the site that nobody's heard of and nobody's been to. Well, <laughs> I got plenty of those, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Fort Ligonier, which is an awesome museum. Um, you know, obviously the, the fort is, is, is a recreation, but the, um, the museum there is fantastic. It's a great museum about the French Indian War. Um, you know, it doesn't just cover what's happening in Pennsylvania. It covers what's happening on the worldwide scope, talking about, you know, one of the first world wars. And the exhibit in there was, uh, you know, kind of blew me away. I expected a good museum, but I got a great museum. And the exhibits there, the artifacts they have are from around the world. It's an amazing um, collection of artifacts. They, they do it thematically by, you know, different uh, geographic regions of the world where the French and the, the British and other countries too are all fighting um, in what we call the Seven Years War, the French Indian War. So um, it's a great site. I know it's not unheard of, Mark, but I think it's probably more unheard of than Mount Vernon. Um, but I had a chance to go up there with uh, Bert Dunkerley and Mark Wilcox and Doug Crenshaw, some other ERW, ECW friends of ours a couple years ago. And we went there into Bushy Run Battlefield, which is another great site. Um, uh, that I'd never been to before. Nice, nice park there, um, commemorating that small battle there. But I'll go to Fort Ligonier. I'll go French Indian War with Billy. <laughs> but Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon is great. I mean, I have friends who work there, and I know you do too, Mark. So Mount Vernon is fan is a is a great spot. And Mark and I are lucky enough that we live within a few minutes drive of of Mount Vernon. So, um, but you know, we just went to the. Uh, the new museum in Yorktown, the American Revolutionary War Museum in Yorktown, which, which is pretty nice too. Um, Yorktown is not unknown, but that museum is pretty new. And if you haven't got a chance to go down there, definitely go check it out. Um, it's 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 worth it's worth going into if you if you're there to visit the battlefield. It's worth seeing that museum as well. The exhibits are brand new, top notch, just like the one in Philly too. There's been a lot of yeah, a lot of new museums recently or you know at least upgrades and stuff like that and i'm hoping it's a trend that will continue as we build towards 2026 and the 250th anniversary of the revolutionary war yeah and someone said fort lee too that's a cool spot um just before you go across that damn bridge but uh into new york <laughs> but uh I mean, it's a cool place I think it's the same thing that I was saying about Trenton is, I mean, the whole Manhattan Island, I mean, there's battlefields all across that that are totally built over and covered up, but, uh, you know, those are important sites that should and could be interpreted, uh, at least to let people know that where they're walking, living, and everything like that is, uh, is a battlefield. Um, same thing with Charleston, South Carolina, and they're doing some work down there to find the siege lines in Charleston, which is kind of cool. Because, yeah, a lot of where the siege lines were, where a lot of action happened is today, bars and restaurants and all sorts of things like that. People don't realize, you know, uh, that, you know, even though it hasn't been cordoned off and set aside as, you know, parkland, uh, it's still hallowed ground. People still fought and bled there. And there should be at least some sort of reminder in my mind. And that happens to be one of the places that Mark Malloy is not allowed to visit anymore. So... <laughs> <laughs> How about I'm gonna go? I'm I'm gonna get Mark riled up here. How about monuments? What's a good? What's a favorite Rev War monument? Okay. Because I had yeah. I had one in my mind for the historic site, but it's not really a, a well known place, so it's a monument. But um, what do you think, Mark? Your favorite your favorite Rev War monument? Okay, this one this one is an unheard of, little known one. 
that I think is very cool. Uh, and it's uh, the statue of George Washington in Washington, D.C. Uh, at Washington Circle, uh, which is just north of Georgetown. Those people who are familiar, it's in Washington, D.C., but it was erected and put up uh, in the 1850s, uh, 1858, I believe. Uh, it was sculpted by Clark Mills, and it shows Washington on its horse uh, at the Battle of Princeton. Uh, and it's supposed to be the moment that Washington rides in between the two lines of the British and the Americans and is reining his horse back and the horse is stopped in its in its tracks with its ears ahead, you know, obviously in the middle of battle and Washington coolly sitting on, on top of the horse. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's, I think it just looks awesome. It has this great history of being built just prior to the Civil War. So it's been there for a while. Um, and uh, I think it commemorates Washington. And like I said, probably in militarily speaking, his most important moment there at the Battle of Princeton. Um, you know, and there's another one that I wrote an ERW article about, and that's the one for Phil up at uh, uh, Baltimore in their Washington Monument. At the very top has a statue of Washington, not doing anything militarily. He's standing there holding a piece of paper, but it's probably the net, you know, the other most important moment of his whole life, and that was resigning his commission, uh, which happened in Maryland in 1783. So I think those two Washington monuments are uh, very cool. So I really like those ones. Uh, I would have to say, uh, we were talking about Princeton. Well, the Princeton Battle Monument is pretty impressive mm -hmm. uh, there in the town itself. And um, also the, the Monmouth Battle Monument, too, which I, I like not just because it's for the Battle of Monmouth, but because the cornerstone of it was, uh, was laid by George McClellan when he was governor of New Jersey. He gave a little, little dedication address there for it. So kind of full circle how during the Civil War and uh, the years following, everybody's still hearkening back to the, the days of when we won our independence. You had to pull in McClellan, didn't you, of Billy? Kevin, Kevin is somewhere <laughs> jumping up and down. Our friend Kevin Pollack is going crazy right now hearing about George McClellan. <laughs> what do you think, Phil? Um, so I'll uh, stay in uh, at least, uh, on a nearest hometown in New York, but uh, still be a homer with my Marylanders. Uh, I was the older monument for the uh, the Maryland Monument Marker um, for the uh, Maryland 400. Um, and, uh, <laughs> up at uh, Lookout Park there. Um, uh, in Brooklyn, um, Lookout Hill, excuse me, Prospect Park. Um, I mean, one of those, uh, I think it's one of Washington's um, greatest compliments to the entire state of Maryland or any of their native sons. My God, what brave uh, fellows I must lose this day. Um, that's one. Um, and then also um, saying uh, one of always liked for some reason, and I, I don't know why, is always in the Daniel Green one at um, uh, Guilford. Guilford. Uh, just, uh, just something, something about it. Um, I mean, for a guy who, um, I mean, I feel like he's the epitome of the uh, um, the poor man's Washington, the failure at every uh, every battle, but he holds the army together. He's a court. He's gives pride to all those quartermasters because he does go down in history. Um, so he's afraid he'll never be known in the annals of history. Um, and yeah, he's just an amazing guy. Just something about that statue. Uh, there, it's just always uh, maybe it's the, the walk up to it or, or whatnot. But I've always, anytime I'm at Guilford, I'm always always spend a little bit of time in front of that one. I just think it's a, uh, a great monument for a guy who um, um, proved himself. I mean, and uh, through all those failures and 
um, overcame that limp that sent him home when he was in Marshall enough. And he just uh, learned everything by reading. I mean, look at look behind all of us. There's books. So I mean, um, we're uh, Nathaniel Green learned everything by reading history. So good uh, props. So those are the two uh, there. Another great general who didn't win much on the battlefield. Exactly. Yeah. Still accomplished a lot. I'm going to go with one from my childhood, not too far from where I grew up. Uh, there's a just west of Aldi on Route 50 here in Northern Virginia. There's a small little plaque on a on a stone pillar in the middle of a field. Uh, our friend Travis Shaw has seen it. He works out there. Um, it's to it's to John Champ, who I'm sure billionaires John Champ. John Champ uh, was a sergeant major in the Continental Army and was. Uh, it's a long story. It's a great blog post about it I wrote a few years ago, but John Champ is um, picked to, um, you know, go over to the British side. No one knows it other than Washington, a few of his closest aides. So uh, he is to be, he's to defect over to the British lines and his job is to try to capture Benedict Arnold. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's in New York city for a while. Uh, a couple of days before he's supposed to enact this plan Arnold leaves to go south to Virginia, um, to which Champ has to go with him because he's serving in Arnold's uh, legion. And so uh, one of the sad parts about this story is Champ is actually going to be in some of these smaller battles in Virginia fighting other Virginians because he can't, you know, he, 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 he has a hard time finding a chance of breaking away. He does break away, um, leaves, you know, runs out of the British Army ends up to the valley um, as a wanted man. He is, he has a price on his head because everyone thinks he defected from the American army. Um, he does make it back. Um, and, you know, his role has been revealed about what he was in charge to do, but he volunteered to do it. Um, and to think about, you know, just everyone thinking you're a traitor and people having a price on your head and then you know, the plan doesn't work out. And then you have to actually fight with the British against Americans here in Virginia, where he's from. It's a pretty amazing story. But his house was just west of Aldi, Virginia. And in the field, when I was a kid, I remember driving by this thinking, what is this pile? It's, it was kind of a pile of stones. But since then, they've actually kind of fixed it up. And there's a plaque. And if, you're, if you were willing enough when I was younger to dare jumping in the, the bull field there, you could run down there and see the plaque. And it's a little monument to John Champ, who is a Loudoun County hero. They actually named a high school after him here in Loudoun a few years ago. Um, no movement mark on getting that change, but hopefully we're good with John Champ. But, but John Champ has been a lot forgotten. Um, he moves up to West Virginia. He's actually buried in uh, Fairmont, West Virginia. Just a couple of years ago, they actually put a, a stone marker, uh, military marker at his grave. But it's a neat little marker. If you're driving down Route 50, it's mostly a Civil War area with the John Mosby uh, Highway there. But if you look off to your left as you're driving west from Aldi to Middleburg, you'll see the John Champ plaque. And it's a, it's a cool little monument. Yeah, I think uh, Champ was supposed to capture Arnold when he was like, going to the bathroom at yeah. night. Some <laughs> were our most vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, and, and there is a character in the in that TV series turned um, that that plays John Champ um, briefly. So it was kind of neat to see uh, them at least know that story existed. So um, he's, a, he's a neat character, and uh, you know he comes back to loud and he's a farmer, kind of a uh, you know. Just, but think about what he volunteered to do is pretty amazing. There are a lot of uh, good uh, uh, mentions in the comments section. I see uh, people mention the uh, the unknown soldier in Philadelphia. That is a very powerful place. Uh, 
you've never been, it's, it's not, it's just, you know, behind Independence Hall. If you go to Philadelphia, you got to go there because it's, it's in Washington Square Park, which used to be a burial place. And uh, in the 1950s, they actually excavated and found a, a soldier who had been killed during the war and they put him in a special uh, burial spot. And it's got a, a, you know, a stone thing on top and it says, you know, uh, under this uh, tomb is uh, uh, one of Washington's soldiers. He died to give you liberty. Um, and uh, a statue of Washington, some great quotes, and an eternal flame. So I definitely uh, definitely agree with that. The other people mentioning, uh, yeah, Washington statue in Union Square, New York City, which is great, showing him coming back into the city. There's another great Washington one in Richmond that I forgot to mention earlier, too. And also has all great Virginians from the Revolution era underneath of him, uh, which is really great. Um, uh, the Hugh Mercer statue in Fredericksburg, uh, which is also really cool. Um, it actually includes, uh, the, you know, Congress designated there should be a statue built to him during the war. You know, it took 100 years later before they actually built it, but that's another great one. Uh, and I'm surprised Billy hasn't mentioned this one. A couple of people talking about the boot. Uh, boot. Yeah, I was trying to give a non-Arnold answer. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely is one Typecasting. of the monuments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was obviously privately put up. And uh, I think the man's name was DePeister. He was a, a Civil War veteran. But so that that's his words on the back of it, where he says, "Dedicated to the most brilliant soldier in the Continental Army." I uh, I kind of have another favorite question. Um, this one more so goes to the history side of things for us as historians. What is your you know favorite Rev War document or primary source? Wow. The the Southern Campaign pension for me is the pension records are fantastic, especially if you're researching. You know, I'm working on Camden right now. Mark's working on Charleston, I think. Um, <laughs> it's it's a great resource, and it's all uh, not all of it, but a good majority of it has been put online. Um, so it's it's easy accessible for anyone to get to, um, especially during times of COVID when a lot of these archives are closed right now, and you can't get into these places that uh, have all these great resources. The uh, the Southern Campaign's pension records are, for the most part, have been transcribed too as well. And they're online for anyone to see. So I'll point to that because that's what I'm spending my time on right now. Uh, I'll say the uh, Founders Online is a great resource as far as getting the letters of most of the major, uh, you know, Washington's letters and things like that, I think are, you know, really important to understand, you know, from that 30,000 foot level. You know, and it's interesting because looking at the common soldier, it seems like there are, it's fragmentary where there's, you know, random letters from people here and there, uh, or, you know, either pension applications, you know, or memoirs. And I think the most famous of those is Joseph Plum Martin's, uh, which is just, I mean, it's kind of fun to read because, you know, all the kind of his, mm -hmm. uh, kind of his, uh, you know, he takes a little bit of humor looking at back at his time in the and stuff like that which i think but it does kind of give you that kind of sense of what it was like for the common soldier um but but founders online is a great uh, uh tool to look through and uh, you know you can just like search for keywords to find different letters from people about talking about certain subjects you're looking for so i okay. think that 
sorry, I was going to say for me, my favorite one um, to go back to and reread is uh, the Charles Lee court martial papers. And I was talking to, uh, you know, Christian McBurney the other week on here, author of George Washington's nemesis. And we brought up the point together that it's, it's a very convenient document because everybody is giving their testimony at the same time and arguing with each other for us. So it isn't like taking a letter written, you know, right after the battle and a letter written six months later, and then trying to kind of cross examine them to see what matches up. Everybody's doing that for us. So I think that courtroom kind of uh, uh, manuscript is really, really just invaluable in uh, being able to dissect what actually did happen. Um, and I guess uh, I'll kind of go back to uh, the Southern campaigns, but um, also, also how Williams um, writes some uh, very interesting things um, about it. Uh, he's in a various, uh, various roles throughout the campaign. I mean, I think he's brought uh, the adjutant uh, to Gates uh, for a little bit, and then he's put in some, uh, in charge of some of the light infantry at um, the retreat to the Dan. Um, and he's one of those guys that um, um, is uh, initially uh, kind of captured at Fort Washington, which breaks his health. Um, but he continues to serve throughout the war, and yeah, his uh, roles change in the Southern Campaign. And he's one of those officers that seems to be there, um, and so it's kind of an interesting. Um, and then he has, actually had a very early biography done in the 1820s, um, like the times of both Holland Williams. Um, um, so it just shows that um, it's remarkable that uh, that quickly after the war, someone else that we don't recognize today actually had a 120-page um, uh, brief. Brief sketches, as they called it, of the life and uh, times of Arthur Williams. So, so, so I'll do that one, uh, obscure one, but really helped me when I was doing my uh, work at George Mason for my uh, graduate degree. I think that's a great segue. I was going to follow up with one last question. Somebody asked us since we're getting close to eight o'clock, and Mark has a football game to go watch, supposedly. Um, but that is what are, what are we reading? So let's talk about real quick what books we're reading. I'll just start off by I'm reading John Beeks's uh, very new biography of DeKalb, which is pretty good. Came out in 2019. If you're into DeKalb, um, not just you know Southern Campaign, but every, his entire uh, his life, even before the war, this is a really good book. I highly recommend it. It's it's well written, um, great maps, lots of great information. Uh, lots of good primary source material as well. So I'm reading DeKalb, uh, biography of DeKalb. Mark? Uh, well, I was going to go last. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'll go ahead and let Bill go. Yeah, well, Mark has to pick which Washington biography he's reading right now. <laughs> um, I, uh, so I'll admit, I've been, um, so there's one that I obviously are reading because I'm uh, working on a few uh, side projects so you're reading through uh, those. But the ones, um, I'm on a uh, French officer kick, I guess, since uh, we went to this, the Yorktown campaign. And um, I was impressed by some of the French monuments and everything. And so uh, one, uh, I said earlier, I was reading Lafayette. I'm pretty much finished it. This is the one I'm starting tonight uh, on Rochambeau. Um, I find it, uh, I mean, I just don't know much about them. Um, and I, I, the first page, I think, is just his first name. So I think I've already done the first name. Um, <laughs> and his rank. <laughs> and his rank. So, um, but no, uh, so yeah, I'm on a French officer kick. So. Right. I've been uh, reading the same book since uh, July of last year. And that's uh, Rick Atkinson's. Oh, yeah. I just keep putting it down and, and then I'm to pick it up like three months later mm -hmm. to keep reading it. Very good book. Very heavy. 
but still good. Um, but I'm writing some articles on the Battle of the Monongahela and Fort Necessity right now. So the one book that I am going through that is always one of my go-to references for the French and Indian War in Western Pennsylvania uh, is Guns at the Forks. And that covers everything that goes on around present-day Pittsburgh uh, during the French and Indian War. Really good book. All right. And so the Washington biography that I am currently reading is uh, First and Always uh, by Peter Henrikus, uh, which is awesome. Uh, about three quarters of the way through it at the moment. Uh, there it is. Yep. Uh, and it's, uh, it's fantastic for a couple reasons, because it's not a standard biography. Uh, he just kind of like, the author basically chooses some of the most fascinating or interesting aspects of Washington life and really delves in a deep look uh, and basically tries to, uh, you know, make insightful ideas about, you know, what made Washington who he was or whatever. So it gets very, uh, very in-depth, um, which I really enjoy. Uh, being the Washington connoisseur I am. Uh, but uh, the reason why I wanted to go last is this is gonna segue perfectly into uh, our next thing. We're gonna actually, uh, in two weeks on December 13th, uh, at this time, we're gonna have the author, Peter Enriquez, come on uh, here and I'm gonna interview him and talk to him about this book. Uh, and uh, he's, a, he's great. He spoke at our ERW symposium last year about Washington. Uh, he's, you know, studied Washington his whole life uh, and, uh, you know, has great insights into the man and uh, his character and his importance in, in our country. So, uh, you know, and we're going to be, he's also the pretty much the subject matter expert on the death of Washington. Uh, so this biography of Washington is his second one. Uh, his other one was called Realistic Visionary just fantastic. And he also wrote a small pamphlet just about Washington's death called He Died As He Lived. Uh, and uh, he's going to be, uh, so we're going to be talking on the anniversary of Washington's final illness. So hopefully be able to talk to him a little bit about that and get some information from him about that as well. But that's going to be our ERW Rev, Rev War Revelry on December 13th at 7 p.m. right here on the ERW Facebook. And so, um, in, in line with that, we're not having one next Sunday in December because the holidays we're doing every other week. So um, we'll be back, as Mark said, with Dr. Henriquez, who was one of my professors at George Mason University. It's a great book talking about his book. But Mark, you're, we got Mark working very hard in December. Mark's working overtime. We're doubling his current salary that he makes for ERW right now. <laughs> zero times two is zero still. Um <laughs> But but Mark's going to be doing Trenton and Princeton as well later in December, which ties in with our bus tour that we are working on right now. Um, we're, we hope to have more information up at the time. Mark, what's the date for that? I should know, but I don't. So for the tour? No, for the uh, for your talk for the ERW. Uh, that'll be the whatever 27th. Yeah, so we'll be yeah. actually talking about 10 crucial days in the middle of the anniversary of 10 crucial days. So right. Happened, so. And we're hoping to have more details about the bus tour that we're doing next November of Trenton and Princeton with Mr. Mark Malloy. You get to spend two whole days with Mark. It's worth its worth its uh, weight in gold right there. I can tell you that from spending lots of time with Mark. It's, it's worth it. But Mark and I are going to go up in January as well and do some videos that we're going to shoot in time up there. 
Um, so stay tuned for that in January. But so we will be doing December 13th and December 27th here, uh, not every Sunday, but every other Sunday to give some of our guys here a little bit of a break over the holidays. Um, we still have our symposium planned for May of next year. There's information on our blog for that. We're still going forward with that. Nah, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we can get that um get that through in May here in the city of Alexandria. That's the same lineup of speakers, which includes Mark, uh, as we had scheduled for 2020. But of course, because of, because of COVID, we pushed that to 2021. Um, so more information about that on our website as well. Um, and one thing too, Mark and I are doing tomorrow. Mark and I are meeting um, a good friend of ours, Dr. John Moss at the United States Army Museum here in uh, Northern Virginia. So if you all uh, haven't heard, the Army has built a brand new museum here at Fort Belvoir, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, just opened up a few weeks ago. Um, we got a sneak peek of it back in March, but it wasn't completed. And we're going in there tomorrow to look at the Revoir exhibit. And we'll probably talk about that somewhere on the blog post later about the exhibits there, about the American Revolution, um, pre-Civil War exhibits. I'm sure we'll look at the Civil War exhibit too, but we'll focus at the on the pre-Civil War exhibits. So that's... Mark and I are going to see each other tomorrow um, and do that. Do you guys have anything else? No. No. Well, thank you, everyone. Phil, I'll sign off for everybody, all right, <laughs> since you said hello. But thank you, everybody, for, for joining us. Like Phil says, this is our 34th program. We've been running since April 19th. We're going to keep them going. We're just going to take it every other week in December. So we'll see everybody in two weeks. And, and thanks again for watching. Take care. Be safe. <laughs>